You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Well, good morning. This is John Corr and the Reverend C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. This is the Living Truth Podcast. And in case you are new to us, we are two friends who love to get together to talk about the Scripture and life and God and Jesus. And we have a wonderful time doing that. And we uh, have been going through the Scriptures together. We have been going through the book of Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah is only four chapters long, but it's taken us, this is our 16th recording of Jonah. <laughs> anyway, we're having a lot of fun. And uh, first of all, I want to say hello to my good friend, Reverend Mitchell. How hello, are you doing, it's, I'm, How are you? I am well, man. How are you doing? I'm, I'm, do- I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's, it's a beautiful 180 degrees here in Phoenix. And we are staying inside, of course, um, avoiding the heat and social distancing and all that. But uh, it's good to get together to um, to talk and to share and to talk about God's Word. So it's been a while. We, we've been doing uh, other recordings before that on special occasions and special uh, responses to different events. But we thought we'd get back to the Scripture and get back to uh, the Word of God. And we've been thoroughly enjoying our series in Jonah. If you have not had a chance to listen to the previous recordings, you may do so at, at our website, which is passionforhisword.com, passionforhisword.com. And there you can find our recordings through Jonah. We also have recordings through the Book of Ruth and other various recordings as well. Uh, if you happen to be on Facebook, you can find us uh, at a couple places on Facebook including Living Truth um, or um, at Passion for His Word. Anyway, with that said and done, let's, uh, let's get started. We actually left off last time at the end of chapter 2, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to read the first section of chapter 1 and then pick it up with the end of 2, and, and then we'll, our goal is to get into chapter 3. That's We're going to be in chapter 3 today. So Jonah starts off, of course with this, these words. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, and paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And after that, it talks about how the Lord threw a, 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 a storm uh, their way. And of course, uh, the sailors try to figure out whose fault this is. And Jonah says, well, it's my fault. Throw me into the sea and the sea will become calm. Jonah, of course, gets swallowed by a great fish. And that takes us to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he's in the belly of the fish. And he prays a very significant prayer. We talked about this in, in the previous uh, recordings. But it says at the end of chapter 2, after he prays this wonderful prayer of thanksgiving and everything else, it says in verse 10, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto 
to the dry land. Now we pick up with chapter 3, and here's what it says in chapter 3. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am about to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days, a three days walk. Then Jonah came, or rather, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from, from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and uh, uh, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and, and sat on ashes. And he issued a proclamation. He said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is, which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. That takes us at the end of, of chapter 3. Now, we don't know how long it's going to take us to go through chapter 3, knowing our track record. <laughs> it's going to take us 14 years, right? But Jonah is finally, he's finally on dry land. He's finally going forward with, with the calling that God has in his commission to do. And, of course, he's had quite a journey there. But let's talk about this because uh, there's a lot that's here, and uh, we'll see how the Lord directs us, and uh, we'll get started. Okay, so Jonah, he's, he's spit up. He's, uh, he's been regurgitated by the, uh, by the fish, and I can't imagine what that would have been, you know, that journey and, and what he's gone through. So let's talk about it. Well, I think, John, um, I think... Chapter 2, verse 10 um, is certainly a break in chapter 3, verse 1, verse 1, right. is a transition. Right. Uh, the grammar would recommend that to us uh, in the text. Um, I don't want to forego, again, a rehearsal of chapter 2, verse 10, because it seems to me that he's going to bear some sort of marks that's going to give credulity to his claim. So what you're saying is the fact he's been in the fish for, for a couple days. For three days. It's going to have some effect. Absolutely. The acidity of whatever that fish is, because the word for fish in the biblical text is dog. Right. right? And so that's going to be very general. Um, um, but it has to be of some size in order to have or house a grown man for three days. But the fact that he's been in here, um, there are going to be consequences. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here. Is is um, um, I I imagine the uh, emotional trauma of being having to be in the fish. You know, if you're if you're Jonah, but now if you're in the fish, you're going to have some physical effects on you. Perhaps you've been bleached, or perhaps there's some effect of 
maybe a smell, maybe there's something that is like, well, your present, your presentation or your, your looks are going to be changed. But uh, the, the scripture doesn't, you know, doesn't address that. It just says that the Lord commanded the fish to, to vomit and back up on the dry land. So we can speculate, you know, what may he have looked like, uh, can imagine the trauma he went through, but then how may that, maybe that have affected his message or the bearing of his message? Absolutely. I, I think that it's not an imagined trauma because chapter two certainly directly addresses right. uh, his trauma, the urgency thereof. What's more, um, chapter number three is going to, to uh, show the prophet in a very urgent mode. Right. And so something of a case has happened to him in this fish that that has not only affected him but may again leave credibility and lend credibility to his message so that there is some sort of physical presentation that makes his message believable outside of and we covered this a long time ago but outside of the circumstances that were attending and already occurring, namely the earthquake that had occurred in this particular area and certain circumstances where it was a, a sort of harbinger, a right. warning to them right. that, that something it's, is stirring. So there were certain things in the history uh, of Nineveh that would have prepared them perhaps for Jonah's appearance, um, uh, things like earthquakes and other things that happened in their history. So the timing of it is, in, is interesting. So. So the Lord spits, uh, has, has this fish uh, spit Jonah back up, now ready to, to go forward with his, his original calling. And what's interesting is how chapter 3 begins. And chapter 3 sounds a lot like chapter 1. Yeah, I think there is a, a, a very deliberate contrast that you see in the very end of chapter 2, verse yeah. 10, with a very simple word that translators, uh, via mer, translators have chosen to translate that word, um, and he commanded, or, or Yahweh commanded the fish. fish yeah. But it really is the very general word of God or Yahweh spoke or God said. Right. There's no forcefulness, as it were, that needs to be implemented on the fish. But what we're going to see is God's devarim or God's words or yeah. God's devar. God's word to the prophet has to be given again because whereas the fish is not resistant, whereas the sailors are not resistant, um, um, the prophet was resistant. See, it's, it's interesting because I'm going back to go back to Genesis. It says God said this and this happened. God said that you know, let there be, you know, and there was. Let there be, and there was. And now he's commanded, you know, he's commanded the storm to go to do, and now he's commanded the fish. He pointed the fish to get him. Now he's commanded the fish. He just be, just be speaking the word. And here's Jonah, of course, the prophet of God is supposed to be spokesperson for God. Mm-hmm does what even creation itself would never think of doing in disobeying the word of God. It's interesting how, what's interesting though, is the fact that God still brings him to where Jonah is supposed to be to do what he still originally called him to do. So, and what's interesting is, is like I said, chapter three starts off the same way as chapter one. There's some slight differences. Chapter one says the word Lord came to Jonah. Um, uh, and here it says, the word Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time, right. That's interesting. It, it is, because what we're looking at, first of all, is, again, to rehearse a bit of chapter number one, 
um, uh, this, this, this recoiling or, or hesitancy, as it were, with the call is not abnormal to many of the First Testament figures, to many of the individuals that God called. Right. Uh, but Jonah is silent in that he doesn't vocalize his resistance, but he certainly well, plays it out in his activity. But you have, you have a difference with Jonah, and so you have God calling Moses. Oh God, I I don't send me. I'm I stutter, right? You know, don't use me to speak, you know, or don't you know who am I? Uh, Jeremiah, you know, I'm just a youth, right? They 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 voice their they voice their objection. They don't run away, you know. Here, Jonah doesn't voice his objection. He doesn't verbally voice his objection until chapter four, but his life of running away. Uh, voices his objection, but it's different. You know, there God says, well, you know, who made, he tells Moses, who made man's, man's mouth? Well, of course he did. And Jeremiah, I will put my words in your mouth. You know, you're afraid. But, and, and so he responds to that. But here's Jonah is just completely running the opposite direction from his, from his call and his commission because of the, because of the fact that he's speaking to these very people. But God, it says that the word came, Lord, Lord came to Jonah a second time. And there's no mention in any of this, this text here of God, of God doesn't bring up what just happened in chapter one, chapter two. <laughs> it's almost just like, okay, uh, you're back where we started. Let's try this again. <laughs> you know, arise, go to Nineveh, you know, and, and uh, I just think that's interesting of of the the grace of God and the patience of God mm. for this for this prophet. Um, he's demonstrating tremendous patience to because God could have, you know, we know, we've talked about this. God could have gotten somebody else, but for some reason, he's still stuck with this guy. Well, what God is going to do in the prophet is going to be seen in his activity toward the goyim or toward the Gentiles, the people, here, right? yeah. Um, um, uh, the Ninevites in this case, right? I, I think the content of the book and its majority in one area is exceptionally heavy. And we should mention that John, because while God commissions him to do that, which he does in chapter number one, he's so busy running in chapter number one that really, um, he's the focus in chapter one. Yeah. Um, he's in this disciplined mode of being disciplined in chapter number two. So he's the focus of chapter number two. Um, he's quite aggravated in chapter number four. So he's the focus of chapter number four. Right. Um, interestingly enough, he's the focus of the majority of this book. And now for the first time, really, we're going to get into the gentilic response. Right. We're still going to get a glimpse of Jonah's attitude in the, even in this chapter. Absolutely. We're still going to get it. But I just think in, in that verse, first verse where it says that, that God spoke to him a second time, um, he says, in fact, he says, again, parallel with chapter one, it says, arise, in, in chapter one, it says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here, God changes that to uh, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. It's interesting. Um, here, there's a there's a subtle change in even God's telling Jonah, and then He says, "Proclaim that which I'm going to tell you." Mm -hmm. 
like I will tell you when it when you need when you need to know, but there's a there's a um, there's a slight change. It's a parallel. It's it's like again we're going back to, to step one. God doesn't mention anything about Jonah's running away. Doesn't doesn't respond. There's no response to his prayer in chapter two. You know it's it's yeah. you know there's there's there is a, it's silent, which can speak of the God, the grace of God. Um, you know, you know, the, it could speak of a lot of things, but I just think it's significant. He doesn't, because I think God's more concerned with the Moses or with Moses, the, the, the message that Jonah will deliver to these people. He's really concerned for these people. And, uh, maybe perhaps at different times, a time to talk about, you know, at the end of the book, he'll talk to Jonah about, uh, about his approach. But I just think it's significant that, um, that God doesn't give up on Jonah, you know, and there's, you know, it's like the the idea of of the the gifts and the callings are irrevocable, and how how God is 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 patient with wayward prophets, with runaway prophets, with people who resist His call and go the opposite direction. He's very patient, and uh, and He's giving Jonah a whole lot of grace. And this the idea of second chances comes to my mind. I mean, here's Jonah; he's going to go through this, but it's going to be begrudgingly. But he's still going to do it. And uh, just the fact that God, you know, still commissions him and still has him speak the words, you know. And so I'm just thinking of those terms, you know. About- Absolutely. I, there is something, however, I think that should be noted in the text. That that when you're looking at the language, as you said, in, in the Masoretic text, there is a deliberate allusion and almost, not altogether, but almost a repetition. Right. I think therein is God's recollection couched in this phraseology of, okay, so we know what happened the first time and we know what had to be done in order to get you back here. And I think you find that illusion in this terminology, kum, arise. arise. But, but, but the precursor to it is the narrator's way of saying, so, so the Lord had not changed his mind. Um, he's coming at this again. He's extraordinarily merciful to the prophet, but God is yet serious and sober about that which he commissioned the prophet to do. And so he says, Kum, arise right. and go to Nineveh. That repetition in and of itself is both corrective and and full of command, if you will. Right. In other words, Jonah, after all of that lengthy, lengthy to do, still you are set about the business that I have commissioned you. Yeah. So you know, in verse two, he says, "Arise and go, and go to Nineveh, the great uh, city, and proclaim to it." Just tagging back on to chapter one, where he says, "Go and speak." He says, uh, "Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness has come up before me." Here he changes the wording to "go and proclaim to it," which opens up the possibility that there perhaps may be unexpected response or consequences of his mission. In other words, the first part was, was pretty you know, clear, speaking against the wickedness here, proclaim to it. And it sort of leaves, it's, it's starting to leave open the door of perhaps God has other things in mind with using Jonah, right, to, um, to speak a message to these Ninevites um, and prepares us as the readers that perhaps what happens at the rest of the chapter uh, is a response to that proclamation, right? Yeah, what we see, I think, John, in the First Testament is there are occasions 
when uh, Yahweh will speak, and his precursor of speaking actually is an act of mercy that gives an opportunity to relent from one's action. Right. Uh, for instance, um, you get the same thing in Genesis six, right? I was when, just thinking, saying, when when Noah, Noah I was is, the same thing. is proclaiming that that it's going to rain and there's going to be a flood, as it were. God's purpose for giving this period of the preaching of Noah, as clarified by one Peter, is in order to actually forego judgment. Is is that was that was the spirit of Christ crying right. through Noah, right? In order to bring about a conviction and a transformation. So that tells me that just because so many people's concept of God, especially Old Testament God, oh, he's a God of judgment, you know, and he's he's just a wrathful God, but not really realizing the long suffering of God that every time he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, especially now to Israel and, and Judah to, to repent, you know, and to call. And so here's warning, right, of, of judgment that's coming, but at the same time, turn, 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 you know, repent, you know, and there's this, this, this opportunity when God calls and speaks forth a predictive thing of judgment, there's also opportunity for repentance. And so you have this, of course, within the, the prophets of themselves who spoke to, uh, to God's people, that God, that the heart of God is really as much as possible to give people a chance, you know? Well, I, I want to, I want to be very careful, uh, John, because I, I think you insightfully point out that the theory that a lot of people have is the God of the first Testament. Well, first that's, that's a misnomer, right? Um, it, it, it almost suggests that there is another God at operation, right? Uh, in the transitional Testaments and in the new Testament proper. Right. Uh, so that's a, a, a misstatement. The, the second thing is, um, that what we see is the pre-incarnate Christ right. present actually to lead off in acts of judgment in the First Testament. Yeah. So, so you really can't pit God of First Testament against God of New Testament because, first of all, it's a misnomer. Secondarily, um, who was it but the messenger of Yahweh who appeared to um, Joshua to say, I am come as... Uh, the, the captain of the Lord's army, right? right? Um, in, in the First Testament, he is known as Yahweh Sevioth, or the, the Lord, Lord of armies, armies yeah. or Lord of hosts, is right. how that's oft translated. My point there, I think, is this misses a critical theological doctrine, and that's the simplicity of God. Yeah. When we're looking, when most people come to that conclusion, what they're looking at is they're looking at the characteristics of God as fractionated. So you say, let's do, so we can define simplicity. You're not saying that God's simple. You're saying there's a, a unity or a, a um, not dividedness. Let's a say, non-divisibility of God and inseparability. Okay. Yeah, well, God cannot be separated. He cannot so, be divided. So He's when you think divisible. about when you think about God, we we tend to want to think, well, God's a God of love, right? Well, He's also a God of righteousness and a God of, I mean, everything at the same time. You know? Well, let me say it in a different way, if I right. may. I, let me let me say not only everything at the same time, let me say that that which is in any attribute or characteristic of, or perfection of God yeah. is automatically intermingled and intermixed. In fact, it is holistically all of those other things. So it is a loving wrath. Yeah. 
It right. is a just wrath. Right. It is a holy, righteous wrath. Right. It is an omnipotent, all-powerful wrath, it right. is, et cetera. Right. So to speak of one characteristic is to speak of all of the characteristics. So this gets into, what's interesting, this gets into a little bit of Jonah's re- reluctance to go to the Ninevites because he's he's upset that God's going to share or give the Gentiles, especially these particular Gentiles, these Ninevites, the Assyrians were horrible people. That, uh, they were really, really bad news. They would take people away and, you know, put hooks in their mouth and drag away slavery and everything else like that. This is, speaks to now God's message to say, hey, I want to even share with the non-Hebrew, the non-Jewish, uh, non-Israelite uh, to give them a chance, you know. This actually is a precursor to the gospel of going to the Gentiles, you know. Right. Which is interesting because Jonah is now going to a Gentile nation warning them where she normally which it just i'm just thinking the parallels because i'm thinking of the parallels with peter at joppa same place where i, I like your parallels that's exactly <laughs> I, my finger is literally <laughs> in my bible yeah. on chapter one verse number three but yona rose up to flee tarshish from the presence of yahweh so he went down to yapa now 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 what's interesting is the attitudes of the two men are very similar peter and jonah yeah, so so there's more than a tie-in from Jonah to Christ as he was three days and three nights right. in the belly of a sea monster. But there's also a tie-in of of attitudes concerning the Goyim or every non-Jewish the nation Goyim, here. we call the, na- yeah, the, the nations. The nations, the nations right. or the Gentiles. Everyone who is, non, uh, non- is, is ethically non-Jewish, right? So there's this reluctance on both Jonah and Peter to share God's message of love and and mercy, let's say. I think stupid than a reluctance, a resistance. A resistance. You know, Peter says, well, you know. His I, language is strong. I, I've, I've never, never eaten anything common or unclean. We're, t- we're talking about in the book of Acts where he, where, where he has this vision. Mm-hmm. He has this trance and the, the sheet comes down with all these creatures on it, unclean. And God, and God says, you know, kill and eat. And that's to prepare him for the fact that people from Cornelius' house, um, are coming to want to hear him, you know, come and speak and share the gospel, but there's this, there's almost like they're want, they're not one of us, attitude, you know, and that was an attitude, by the way, that could easily creep in to Jewish thought, right? Um, um, on one hand, being set aside from the nations um, uh, was a wonderful thing. Um, although they were often guilty of assimilation and things that particularly in the Northern kingdom right. and, and eventually the Southern kingdom gets very contaminated with the self same, right? I refer now to the book of Hosea. Um, um, but, but as you go forward from that, what you will see is you will see that there is this attitude then of elitism. Right. Right. And this is what God's trying to communicate to, to Jonah and to the people of God is, you were chosen not because of something special about you, but you're chosen as my my means and my vehicle of communicating to those who are lost, to anyone, whosoever will. And I think it's interesting that that Jesus, yeah, Jesus will use Jonah as an example of, of course, his um his 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 death and everything else. And of course, Peter. It's just the message to us as believers is God's love and, and is is such that he wants us to spread the gospel to people of all kinds, you know, shape, sizes, 
creeds, colors, whatever, you know. By the way, that's not a new concept. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that this was always the musterion or the mystery, mystery. Yeah. that was intended at Genesis chapter number 12. Right. And that whereas they were a beacon or a light to which the nations were to come, Jesus transitions that into now this light is to go to see the this nations. this challenge is you think about jonah who's reluctant and we see this at the end of the book you know but he's reluctant to to do this because he knows he knows he, he's going to say god i know you are going to be merciful that's why i ran <laughs> you know um and this heart attitude of jonah of like well those people don't deserve to hear this and god says no 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 i'm actually the those who are who are in terrible place of wickedness, I'm still gonna I'm still gonna share. Give them an opportunity. And what's interesting is that their response here in this chapter, chapter three, I think is a, an epitome of what repentance ought to look like. And it's almost like to show Israel, um, <laughs> if the Gentile nation can can hear a message like this and respond the way they did, how much more might my, my own people? You know, and and uh, the the sort of you know, wow, they're doing, they're doing uh, God better than we are as a people of God, you know? So um, anyway, so where were we at? We were talking about verse number three. So Yonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Do you have your, your Hebrew Bible there? I do. Do you know what it says? It says an exceedingly great city. It says it, it was a city of Actually, it says it was uh, a great city to God or a, a city, um, perhaps can be translated, a great city important to God. But it tells you something. Here's the city of Nineveh. It's not Jerusalem. It's not in Israel. It's outside of Israel. But it's important to God. Yeah, I, I want to, be, because the translation is so radically different. Hey, Paul, uh, John, that's an exquisite point. Yeah. I, I'm just reading. Um, Vayechom Yona Vayelech El Ninif Ve Kidvar Yahweh Veninive Haitayer Gedola, right? Means That's great. great. But he, here's, the, here's the preposition Le Elohim Mahalach Sholoshet Yamim. In other words, it was a great city either two, two. or four or before. Elohim, God. Right. Yeah. That, that's a profound statement. But the fact that it's important city or great city before God, I mean, it was your great city before people. In other words, it was a big city, we think. But this, it seems to be that this was, that perhaps the people are just as important to God um, as the people were within the, the confines of Israel. It, it seems to set before us a theological hint of, of God's argument in chapter number four, and that is the value system of God. Right. Uh, that God actually values these people. Yeah. That because of their actions, right, uh, they may go down in value before the prophet. Right. They may go down in value before the people of God, but God holds them in value in regard because they are his... Um, Act 17, offspring. Right. Uh, yeah. They are his creation. They yeah. are by creation, his children, nonetheless. And and so God holds a certain value system for them. And God is not um, uh, content to simply throw them away or toss them See, away. This is further evidence 
of sort of the polemic against Jonah's attitude, us versus them. God, we're the chosen people. We are perfect before God. We are chosen. We're lo- you guys are on the outcast. And it's as if God is calling the people of God um, to to love uh, and to share the gospel with those who, because he cares about everyone. He cares about people enough to warn them of their of their of their danger and and he and he he wants to use um he wants to use us uh, as that vehicle and we can't have this i think that the, here's the thing that's difficult i think it's difficult and i'm now i'm fast forwarding to, to to today i'm contemporizing it to today i think for a lot of christians it's hard for for a lot of christians to love those who are, who are not like them um in the immediate context it seems it was hard for the prophet to love those who had hurt them or damaged them in some way. Right. It, not just a dissimilarity, but I agree in application. One of the things with which we struggle is, is well, that person is not like me. Right. Um, and, and what I don't want to do is I don't want to sanctify um, um, those differences that are amoral, that are unethical and say, well, just because they're different, God is accepting of that which is sinful. But what I want to suggest is, uh, you, you said something earlier. You said um, uh, their attitude was, we're chosen. Yes, they were chosen. But why? Not because they were the greatest, the strongest, and not right. even because they were mo- the most obedient. In fact, according to the prophets, they were the most pitiful. And that is what drew, uh, uh, that is what caused them to have an attraction, if you will, yeah. to a God of mercy. And so I do think you're right. Our, our, propensity, uh, our propensity, our proclivity today is for those individuals who have been steeped in sin, we have a better than thou art, a right. self-righteous right. A platform I've, upon which we stand. I've never eaten Gentile food, you know, so to speak, as Peter. I've never, you know, done those. I've, I've, I've kept myself clean. But yet God is, I'm just thinking back now to Gen, Genesis 6, Jonah, uh, Jonah, Noah builds this ark. And for a hundred years, he's a proclaimer of righteousness to a wicked world. And that if, if perhaps there would have been some that would have turned, I'm sure God would have had plenty of room for those people, or he would have made, you know, uh, room. There, there was, the ark was open up L- until the time he shut it at, at the flood. L- listen, not only was the ark open up until that time, but in Genesis 18, God doesn't have to stop and have a conversation with his friend Abram, yeah, and say, "Shall I not tell him what I'm about to do?" Right. Um, and and by the way, he enters into a willing negotiation with Abram. Right. It's it's not because Abram is this this powerhouse that's able to 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 out argue God. Right. God really doesn't want to do this to the point where he says, "Listen, if I can find five, ten, 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 I, you start at fifty righteous people and get down wow. to ten. It's ten. So, 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 so. My statement is: d- Did you know, John? You, of course, you know this. But let me just mention. So, so I know we're jumping a little bit here, but it's on this point that that it really is an, an important theological point. Did you know, even in the Torah and even with the commandments, that God prefers to 
error. Not that God errs. Right. But God prefers to lean. Is right. a better term. Right. On the side of mercy. L- listen uh, yes. to what he says. If you didn't catch them in the act of adultery. Right. It, that's profound. Yeah. In other words, that person didn't just get away. But if they did get away in that moment, they should presume that was the mercy of God. Right. Because legally, right. the, the, the logistics of Torah was set up where you needed yeah, two, two to three witnesses. Right. And, and there was a list of very stern questions that had to, that even the witnesses had to go through in order to arrive at the conclusion. Which is interesting how when they caught the woman in adultery, they say we caught her in the very act. Uh, right. That was such a farce. Yeah. Because if they caught her in the act, they also caught him. the other actor. Right. And they deliberately left him out, which may suggest that the whole thing was a setup to begin with. Right. On her. But, but even at that point... The Torah leans toward mercy. God would prefer to have mercy. Listen at God's first introduction of himself yeah. to Moses. This is not this is not Moses summating God. This is God summating God. And he introduces himself as merciful and gracious. The first thing he says about himself. That's profound. I, I'm God. I'm merciful and compassionate. Slow gracious. to anger. I, I have a long nose. Yeah. I, I, I'm not quick to flare my Flare-up. nostrils. Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes our thinking is closer to this prophet's. Which, it, which t- to tie into the to Jonah is he's actually upset that God is merciful, which is the reason. In other words, we we people tend to read the Old Testament and say God is a God of judgment and wrath, where Jonah's like, actually, he's a God of mercy, and I don't like that about him. That's why I ran the opposite direction. God's, and, of course, God's going to say, shouldn't I have had mercy or compassion on on um, people in the city who don't know their left hand or their right hand, perhaps speaking of those who are children or something, that God would send this this runaway uh, prophet, this this unre- uh, this reluctant prophet, to still warn warn of people that aren't in the, the confines of Israel that have a history that's anti-Israel, that's not really good history. To give them mercy and grace, you know. Yeah, let me let me flip the. The discussion for a moment. Flip the discussion. Um, is that a judo flip? <laughs> <laughs> it's not an Osoto Gotti. No, <laughs> I don't know um, judo. <laughs> it's um, it, to flip the discussion. Um, all truth is God's truth. Um, and where you find God's character, God is ultimately. And finally, the source of that, right? right. That's, right. The, that's the foundational statement. Right. Now, with that substratum statement, let me go further into flipping the discussion in this way. That, by the way, sometimes the, the world accuses the church of not being very merciful. Right. But I think in our modern day, what we're discovering is the world is not merciful either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There, there's, you can't the, turn on the news without seeing that. Buddy, the tolerance movement is an intolerant Oh, God forbid movement. you did something wrong in the past because somebody today will judge you for your past. It, I, it's I, amazing. I don't get political now. But, but No, no, no. I'm not getting political. I'm being very biblical. Yeah. And I'm suggesting that, that, that God is the author of mercy. And yeah. by the way, one couldn't have mercy outside of God. Right. If there is mercy, you can't out mercy God. You can't. No, 
He's the God of all mercies. He's right. the God of all comfort. Right. First Corinthians. And 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 so when when you when you see this, you're you're stunned by the the mercy of God because what you're realizing is that that no one but no one is capable of li- listen to listen to the idea of withholding that which is deserved outside of God granting them that capacity to do that. You know, what's interesting is that the very fact that God doesn't bring up what just happened in chapter one and two to, to Jonah shows his mercy now to Jonah. Yes. He's still keeping him on track. Like he doesn't say, now Jonah, you know, since you've caused such a huge delay and you've prayed this crazy not really sincere prayer and, you know, you know, and all, he doesn't bring that stuff up. Why? Because he's being merciful. He's showing Jonah this, this, this tremendous mercy that, that Jonah doesn't realize he actually needs. And now he's going to use Jonah to share this mercy to a people that will respond to it. It's just, it's just this, the mercy of God is, is throughout this and the patience of God and the long suffering of God and, and the grace of God, um, is uh, is very evident. It's interesting in the, in the course of history, Jonah is about, we think it's about 780 to 750 BC. We know that um, not much later in year 630 or so, the prophet Nahum will predict the destruction of Nineveh. About 100 years from that point, yeah. Nahum, the prophet, will actually come along and God will actually enact that judgment upon right. him. Right. So this, this, it's, it's, you know, there's this mercy that's long-suffering, and these people re- repent. We don't know how long that lasted, but God still sent His He still sent His judgment to 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 the Assyrians uh, later on. But it's just it's interesting that God would actually interrupt time, so to speak, to still offer before that time. He still offers this message of hope and and repentance. Hey, in in forty days. I'm giving you 40 days, and this, we'll talk about that in a second, what that, that significance uh, means. But the fact that they responded, they, they responded. In fact, it says um, that he, he goes, it says now, Nineveh was exceedingly a great city, uh, a three days walk. Scholars, were, we're not certain if that means that it was that big or the circumference, or it took him three days to go to each of the public areas to proclaim his message. Um, it's not like a big city like Phoenix, like nowadays, you know, we have huge right. cities. The cities back then were different, but perhaps it could have been where it took, you know, three days to, to go to one public place and to the next, you know, like he's, but the, the hint is this, it says in verse four, then, Je- then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. So he's just getting in. And the indication seems to be he's just getting started. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and then it will be, will be overthrown. So he's, he's just entering and just starting off. He's not going to get past one day without having a response, which is interesting because it's almost like word will spread, you know, um, to that. So he begins to go and, and, and this is interesting in verse 4. He begins to cry out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, here's this guy who comes from being in a fish. We don't know what he looks like. Perhaps he looks different. But he doesn't even introduce himself. Hi, I'm Jonah, prophet of the Most High God. You know, thus says the Lord. You know, he doesn't follow the 
the typical prophetic oracle, you know, uh, the way you would present your your prophets uh, prophecy, uh, your proclamation. Thus says the Lord. You know, this will happen. You know, the Lord is declared. He doesn't even tell who he is. He says, 40 days, you guys are going to be destroyed." That that tells me something about Jonah right there. <laughs> it could be textually that the prophet elided the message right uh, so as to summarize it right we we know that that is a tendency throughout scripture but but the writer here doesn't even mention he leaves that that's that to me would be an important point if if he's going to he's not going to leave that part out you know where pro, if you read the rest of the prophets you know they're going to say you know thus says the lord that is the key for me that is the linchpin for me. that's the linchpin so let's tell tells me something that, that Jonah left that out. What he put in <laughs> what he left out and what he put in may be an indication that he's so he's speaking the word of the Lord, but he's he's truncating it to an end. Um to not say thus says the Lord. Clearly it's the Lord speaking, it's Yahweh speaking through him, right? But but notice what he does put in there. Yet forty days. Yeah. Now, in biblical numerology, if you look at this number in scripture, it's the number of trial, yeah, of test um, that that can prove uh, or or frankly show up um, and reveal uh, a person, right? Um, the wilderness, the 40 days that it should have taken taken them in their journey, actually uh, proves and shows up their lack of character. And so it ends up taking 40 years. So, so, so almost an allusion to this number is, is not an allusion to, and I hope you make it. <laughs> well, I, I, th- I think there's, a, there's probably a couple things going on with, with Jonah's, it's almost as if he's begrudgingly, okay, God, I'll show the message. 40 days, you guys are toast. 40 days, you know, and it's almost like he is being begrudgingly about sharing that without mentioning it's from the Lord and, and realizing, here's the thing is, it seems that, it seems like the fact that it says yet 40 days, it says yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown or overturned. That word there actually has a double meaning because it could also it can mean um, to turn like as in being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also mean to, and it's the same word that was used for destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But also it could mean a connotation to turn around, hinting at perhaps a repentance. In other words, in forty days. Uh, Nineveh will be overturned. One could mean for catastrophe or destruction, but also the word can mean to to turn as in repentance. Absolutely. Which I think was interesting because the 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 later on they'll say, who knows? Perhaps God may relent. Like they there there is an opportunity there. Hey, and forty days also speaks of. An opportunity to a reflection. I think there's a a, a verse in, in Exodus um, that that uh, that speaks of of the amount of forty days of purification and reflection. And so it seems that 
Um, and there's 40 days that Moses went up to the mountain, you know, it's 40 days Jesus in the wilderness. It, it, there's testing, in the, but there's, it's almost like there's an opportunity here. It's, it's very subtle. So it's like Jonah's holding back on sharing, thus says the Lord, but the very message leaves the possibility, right, of, of hope for the Ninevites. And I think they grasp onto that. I think they, they hold on to that. But I think Jonah's heart, though, um, but the fact that he just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, he doesn't say who's going to overthrow, he doesn't say, doesn't say it's going to be God setting judgment, doesn't say any of that. And I think it's almost as if Jonah's like, yeah, I'll I'll share the message, but I'll craft it in a way so that <laughs> I, I want to be I want to be careful I don't know I'm just speculating because, yeah because it seems like what he has here is in in Hebrew um, um, it's almost working like a divine passive the 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 inference is God will see to its overthrowing I think they understand that because in verse number five they're going to have a transition. Um, um, toward yeah. God, but but I think what you're arguing is that there seems to be couched within the message something of an element of hope, and at least we know that Jonah is approaching the message with an urgency now. At least we know that he's giving probably the bare minimum of the message, right? And and not necessarily even pausing to tease out the message see, for for its opportunity. See, but here's here's where I'm going with this. We know that in chapter four, Jonah, his heart hasn't changed because he, you know, <laughs> right. he delivers the message. He goes up to the to the to the hillside, gets a bag of popcorn, and he's waiting for the fireworks to happen for the for the you know things to come on and destroy the city. He really wants the city to be destroyed. So it's as if he's saying, "Well, I'll just do my part. I'll do what I can to get by." Not really. I don't think he expected the repentance to happen. I think he just oh, said, he absolutely "I'll just, didn't I'll just announce my thing." But it's interesting is how how, um, and and perhaps and, and perhaps it's the the people of Nineveh that were ripe and prepared for this to recognize this is from God. Um, there's a parallel between their response and their sailors' response, where they say, "Get up and call on your God." Perhaps you know. Um, you know, perhaps your God will be concerned about us and we will not perish. And then later on it says, uh, if I remember correctly, that they um, they feared God uh, later on. Or they, 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 But here these people have no, they just have his entrance and his words. If we take it just from the text, perhaps truncated, but, it's, but what's left out is significant. But still they recognize that this is somebody from God and they respond that way. So I, yeah. I'm, let I'm me looking textually, at... Let me yeah. textually anchor that a little bit more. Anchor it. Uh, uh, Give me John. some anchors, brother. Cause... Here's the thing. Let's look within the framework of the book because hermeneutically, when you are expositing a book um, uh, or expositing even a, a section or a passage, what you need to understand the content while we can look canonically throughout the whole of scripture, yet the necessary elements to understand that immediate message to that immediate audience is contained uh, normally within the framework of that book. Let's compare and contrast something here. Because you just mentioned it, go back to the message uh, to the sailors. Now now listen to his introduction to them. He says, um, um, yeah, he said to them, 
I am a Hebrew. Notice you alluded to this fact earlier. You said he didn't introduce himself. Right here, here he, he does. Says, I'm a Hebrew. Right. Right. And then he says, and I fear Yahweh. Right. Elohim. Right. Um, um, now he distinguishes God. In other words, this is a means of introducing God to say, I'm a representative of. He does uh, that here, though. Absolutely. He doesn't he says, do it in chapter three. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Right. So that is conspicuously absent. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, in a more dire scenario, this was the whole point of the mission. The point of the mission was not what he was doing in chapter one. That happened because he's running. Well, chapter one, he'd rather die. Absolutely. And here, he'd rather have them die. But here in... <laughs> that was so funny. That's <laughs> terrible. It was a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth, It's though. true. He'd rather yeah. die in, in chapter one. I'd rather, I'd rather... He says, I'd rather die than, than go and speak to these people and share right. the message. And so the, the, the conspicuous absence... Of what was, pre even the relational tendency, you know, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this yeah. is who I represent, this is who he's the God of. Here's my card. You, you know, he, he doesn't do that. So so you get the sense that some of his urgency running through is not just, man, I really want to get this done for God. Right. As much as there's almost this this innuendo, this insinuation of this, this rush through and and you'll have to fill in the rest of the blanks right. that that I didn't fill in because that's that's just kind of a that's that's just a side note anyway because you're about to die. <laughs> you know what's interesting? I just I'm just thinking about this is that the fact that Jonah left this part out because he could have said, "Hey, I am I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, uh, and I've come to give you a message. You know, you know, hey, forty days y'all have to prepare yourself. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, you'll be overthrown." Right. That even despite the fact that he leaves that part out, God still uses his words. He still uses whatever he said to bring about. Like jo Jonah tried to sabotage God's message. <laughs> it still didn't work, you know? And you know what? Isn't that really John 16? However, I want to be very careful not to plant transitional testament evidence as clear in the first testament but isn't it still the work of the Holy Spirit to convict and to convince yes. the sinner of sin and righteousness right. and their wickedness? And so what you see is um, Jonah has not undermined God at all because the, the most essential conveyor that convinces, that, that impresses the message on the heart of the person— it's not, it's, it's not, I, I, you know, we want to preach accurately. Yeah. We want to preach adequately. We actually want to do a good job, <laughs> but what Jonah may have done deliberately, even in our frailty and our failure, the Holy Spirit can communicate effectively the message in such a way and to such a degree that, that, um, I remember my father, uh, the believer at rest, Bishop Dr. C.L. Mitchell would say something like, it's amazing what a straight shot God can hit with a crooked stick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, and I think we, I think we see that in living color in this text. Yeah. Um, one more thing to open up as a controversy before we get out of this passage. There's a clear transition that takes place from here. And it's a transition that we have to discuss in our next episode. 
Um, because if there were ever a controversy in the book amongst scholars, theologues, it's this little term Nineveh believed. Because some people say, well, I don't think they believed in the real God. I don't think this was necessarily authentic repentance. This is probably just a message that they're thinking is happening from one of the gods. And they turn and and God, you know, sort of supplements that and, and in some way um, um, mm. has mercy and pity and kindness upon them. Um, on the other hand... Is this authentic or genuine belief? You know, what's interesting is that when, when Jonah comes in and he, of course, doesn't introduce himself uh, as a representative of God as he did to the sailors, but he comes in almost reluctantly. We know he's reluctant because he's gone the direction he's gone. And his prayer in chapter two is not really the most heartfelt repentance prayer, but he goes in and he gives a, a truncated version of the message Yet God still uses that truncated version as if to say, I don't need the profanity of your words. I don't need the, 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 the intelligence or logic of your, of your wording. All I need is you be obedient to speak what I tell you to speak. I'll do the rest. And we see the effects. It wasn't, there wasn't anything profound about his words. There wasn't a, a huge development of argument or or, you know, persuasiveness, it was just 40 days and Nineveh is gone, or over, will be overturned. And it's as, if, it's as if God is saying, I have prepared these people. I, all I want from you is to, just, to, just to deliver the message I give you. I'll take care of the rest. And in one sense, it's as if, it's, as if God takes the pressure off us to feel like that we have to change people and we have to convert people. We have to, God says, just, just share, just love and just, just share the word I tell you to share. I'll take care of changing and convicting their heart. The Holy Spirit, that's his job. And just in obedience to, to what I call you to do, just speak, you know? And I think we think almost too deeply or too, I mean, I, I, I almost trip over ourselves as far as having the right words. And if you do this, you say that, then they'll do this, they'll say that. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. This response is the work that the Holy Spirit had put into their hearts Way before Jonah got there, Jonah's words were just, just the linchpin, just the, just the, the, just put him over the, put, just put him over the edge, so the, the edge, so to speak. And so, God is looking for obedience in just sharing the message, as opposed to feeling like that you have to be, that you have to um, win their heart with what you say. That is really not. Our our role our role is to maybe I'm not saying that uh, in an exact way. Um, no, I think I think you're doing fine, John. I think that that what you're arguing is not first to say what you're not arguing is not that the speaker should not be well prepared. No, they should not try to bring their best as a tool before God. But ultimately, the preparedness of our tools is not that which carries over the effect of the message. And here's the, I think the, uh, I think what I'm trying to say is that really God is the difference maker. He absolutely is. He has to be the difference maker. 
And our, our role, if, if, you know, as the, uh, the reluctance of Jonah, and no matter if you strip down his message, you know, as he does, he's, there's still the, the core part of it, of the warning, God can use that, you know, and the, the imper- our message can be imperfect, but can be, it can be used by a God to craft it in such a way that it's effective. You know, it's the, it's the, I, the little I have, I, I, I don't have, Paul says, I didn't come with, to you with per- persuasiveness speech. of speech. In fact, yeah. they, they kind of laugh at him because his appearance isn't that great. And, you know, he's really strong in his writings, but in, in, in person, he's not that much to look at or listen to. But it was the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, and I think that's the the difference here is that is that God is really the difference maker. He doesn't need us to share the message. He doesn't need us to, but it's like he def, 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 he uses people like as frail as us. He's the real difference maker. He's the one who speaks, and there's light. He's the one who speaks, and there's life. He's the one who who really convicts of sin, and he gives weight to it. All he's asking for us is the obedience part of just speaking forth, you know, and. That's John. There's there's another illusion that I want to make between this fellow and Peter. Is it not the mercy of God who says to a prophet who who abandoned and denied and ran from his calling or message that he was to convey? Is it not that prophet who is seen, um, who goes to a Jabba to run, right? Mm-hmm. Is not this fellow somewhat parallel to an apostle who's going to deny Christ mm-hmm. and who's going to run from his commission? And God graciously says to him in different language, what he said to one, then the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. Then the Lord came again to Peter and said, do you love me? Right. Um, I'm so glad that that God uh, has a restorative plan. That he has a tendency to, to not forego our character, but walks with us through the developmental process of that character, so that even though we're not going to be perfect messengers, that we still have the opportunity to convey the message. As I look at this man, that the word of the Lord came to him again, that that falls on my ears as refreshment, yeah. frankly. Because I haven't always been a faithful conveyor of his message, even, even when I wanted to. I look back and I say, hey, did you say that? Yeah. Why did you miss that? And somehow in that that clayness, the Lord graciously spoke or saved souls or convinced people. It wasn't the intellect. It wasn't the degrees. It was work of God. Mm. And then I look at the, the, the part in this text that he arises and and as he arises to convey the message, He's having to wrestle with his own heart. Do you know how how easy it is to convey a message that your own heart hasn't bowed before? Mm -hmm. I look at those moments and I think to myself, what I walk away with in, in these first verses is, wow, you are really merciful. And you're not just merciful 
through me by means of the message. You're merciful to me. And in spite of myself, you're kind enough to use me. I, I think that's an important word to someone today. That uh, with your brokenness, with the water seeping out of your vessel, somehow God reserves enough to still refresh a thirsty soul. I want to say this. This may be controversial in the last moments, in these closing moments. I hope for some preacher who has made a miserable mess of it in your moral life. I hope the word of the Lord comes to you again. Mm -hmm. I hope for someone who has been more topical in their preaching and, uh, hey, be responsible. You need to be expository. But may the word of the Lord continue to come to you and through you and use you uh, to someone who has run. You spent your first years just running. I mean, you are a runner. And, and so now at this stage, you're saying, <laughs> why would God? Well, the reason for why God is still calling you and speaking to you is not found in you. It's found in him. And, and listen, you may not be the most eloquent. You may truncate the message. You may even wrestle with your own heart to the people to whom God wants to communicate the message. But why don't you do this? Give that which you have and that which you can as a tool in God's hands and let him do what he does best. Let him be God and let the Holy Spirit convince and convince the world, convict and convince the world of sin and righteousness. And let's see what God will through, do through broken vessels. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth. For his word is truth.